This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Seven years ago, I was filming at East London Mosque when the story broke the three schoolgirls from the area had gone missing. They were heading to Syria to join the Islamic State group. Shamima Begum was the only one of the girls to emerge from the ashes of the so-called caliphate. I've retraced her steps to investigate the truth of her story. What do you think people think of you? As a danger, as a risk. The Shamima Begum story, series two of I'm Not a Monster. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. In 1957, Stevie Smith published a poetry collection called Not Waving But Drowning and its title poem gave us a phrase which has entered the language. Its success has overshadowed her wider work as the author of more than half a dozen collections of poetry and three novels, mostly written while she worked as a secretary. Her poems, printed with her pen and ink sketches, can appear deceptively simple, but often beneath the surface there are themes of melancholy, loneliness, love and especially death. With me to discuss Stevie Smith are Jeremy Noel Todd, Associate Professor in the School of Literature, Drama and Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia, Nareen Masood, Lecturer in 20th Century Literature at the University of Bristol, and Will May, Professor of Modern and Contemporary Literature at the University of Southampton. Jeremy, Jeremy Noel Todd, she had a very um, unsettled childhood, to put it mildly. Can you just fill the listeners in about that? Stevie Smith was born in 1902 in Hull, in Yorkshire, she was baptised Florence Margaret and was actually known at home as Peggy, so she had different names. She seems possibly to have been uh, premature. She was certainly very ill when she was born and was baptised at home. But she survived that, and then when she was three, uh, her father left the family to go away to sea. And this left her mother in a difficult position, so with her aunt... And you didn't come back? Well, he did come back, but only, as it were, on shore leave to say hello uh, and then disappear again. He effectively abandoned the family, although her mother sort of kept up appearances and, and they remained married. Uh, Smith wrote a poem about this where she said, I, I sat upright in my baby carriage and wished my mama had not made such a foolish marriage. <laughs> so the, the difficulty that this left the family in meant that they decided to move to London, her mother and her aunt, and they settled in Palmer's Green, in the north of London. That was where she lived for the rest of her life. What was the household like in which she lived? It was uh, her mother, uh, and, who was called Ethel Spear, and her aunt, who was called uh, Madge Spear, and there was also, also uh, a great aunt who lived with them. And there was also Stevie Smith's sister, who was a couple of years older than her. Right. 
Much later in life, she wrote a poem which began, it was a house of female habitation, and she evokes this place as being somewhere that keeps fear out, although he knocked, a place of protection, uh, and although she says perhaps its faults were sternness and reserve, she also felt it was a, a house of warmth uh, and love. So they'd moved to London, settled in this new place, but then when she was five, she was diagnosed with TB, probably got it from drinking unpasteurised milk, and she's sent away to a sanatorium uh, in Kent to be by the sea, because that was the prescribed treatment at the time. Mm. And she stays there for most of three years. She's allowed to go on family holidays. Her mother sometimes visits, although this also causes her distress. So she spends a very lonely period uh, in her early childhood there. And then they come back to Palmer's Green, and then what? So her family remain in Palmer's Green the whole time. She returns at the age of eight, and that's around the time when she begins her formal schooling. Uh, she goes to Palmer's Green High School, and then she goes on to North London Collegiate School. But she, when she leaves uh, school as a teenager, she doesn't go on to further education. She goes on to secretarial school. Thank you very much, Noreen. So we go from Yorkshire to Palmer's Green. I don't suppose you remember a great deal of that, then the TB. But then she went to some very high-powered schools. Mm. Well, she hated school. She was very bad at it. She said that she was tired all the time, and to do well at that school you had to sort of drive yourself on, and yeah. she just couldn't be bothered with it, really. It was quite an old-fashioned school. The main thing that she talks about in her interviews is how whenever they did something wrong, they were given a passage of Catullus to learn by heart. And it, that sort of thing makes its way into her later poetry. We have a couple of Catullus, not translations exactly, but kind of pastiches where she plays with it. So school had its constellations, even though by and large she didn't do very well. And her sister went on to university, but she didn't. Was there any particular reason? Was she just not good at passing exams or did she make a decision not to go? The main reason she gave is that she was just always very tired. She was a tired person. This is something that Smith comes back to over and over again during her life, just how tired she is and what an effort she finds life. There's a wonderful anecdote where she describes a painting with all the animals flocking to the ark, but there's one animal who's going the wrong way, and Smith says the animal has looked at the ark and decided not to go, and she said, I'm that animal. You yeah. know, I take a look at life and I think, no, it's not for me. And that started very young. That started at school. She's called Florence. How did she come to be called Stevie? So it was when she was about 19 or 20, and she was riding on one of the London commons with a friend Arnold. And she'd hired a horse for that, and she was sort of struggling with her hired horse and not getting on very well with it. And a couple of little boys shouted out, Come on, Steve! And that was a reference to the jockey, Steve Donoghue. And the friend laughed and said, Oh, I like that. I'm going to call you Steve. And that sort of caught on among her friends. And Steve became Stevie over time. And by the mid-1930s, Smith was pretty much exclusively going by Stevie. She was known as Stevie. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, is her aunt always called her Peggy or Paggy in her Hull accent. And in the suburb at home in Palmer's Green, she was also known as Peggy. So the, she was sort of Stevie at work or in her kind of literary life. And then when she went back to the suburb, she went back to being Peggy. So the, even in her name, it gave, gave her a sort of way of living a double life, having two identities. But we can call it a fairly, fairly nondescript life, fairly normal, lower middle class, genteel mm. life out in Palmer at that time. It provided her somewhere where she could sort of watch and eavesdrop people who li lived a very different life from hers. There was a big park she wandered around. Wasn't there, there was, yeah, yeah. And, and it was much more sort of jungly than it um, than it is now. It was much more sort of countrysidey at that time. 
because she lived in this house of female habitation, which was all these very magnificent women, she got to watch through the suburb more sort of, in inverted commas, normal lives. She got an insight into the lives of women who chose a different path from her, who married and had children. And Smith was fascinated by these. She describes herself as always on the edge, and that gives her a vantage point to kind of watch and listen um, normal lives and eavesdrop on, on the wonderful kind of cliches and tags that she hears in everyday conversation. And they make their way into her poems and her essays. Well, Will May, she claimed to come from a um, unliterary background. Is that true? Um, well, yes and no. Um, her biographer, Francis Balding, says that facts about Stevie Smith's life take on a fictional air, and that's really the case. Um, so she has three sort of quasi-semi-autobiographical novels and returns to her life quite a lot in her poems, and that can make the story of her life seem quite settled. So we have the normal, ordinary suburb and the unliterary aunt, the suburb might have more going for it in terms of literature than we expect. So Stevie Smith's mother took her and her sister to uh, weekly meetings of the Literary Society. Um, she Which literary society was that? The Literary Society of Palmer's Green. Right. So they would have kind of talks there. And her sister's presence is quite significant too. So although Older she talks... younger? Um, older. Yeah. And I think she talks a lot about her aunt, but you can actually read her three novels and almost forget she has a sister, which is very strange, given that her sister goes on to read English at the University of Birmingham, she becomes an English teacher, and after 20 years of teaching, becomes a drama officer for the county of Buckinghamshire. So a very literary person, uh, very excited about Shakespeare, etc., and I think, perhaps deliberately, Stevie Smith refashions her story to make it sound a little bit less literary than it is. And similarly, in her novel, Over the Frontier, um, she talks about her school days and says, I was more than cross, I out-herited them all. <laughs> but actually, the English teachers um, did inspire her. They introduced her to the Golden Treasury, Poor to girl. reciting poetry as well, yeah. yes. And she would often learn and recite poetry. And that feeling for poetry as recitation is really important um, for the poems she will... Um, did she regret not going to university? I'm not sure that she did, actually. I think in the 1920s, if you're a woman and you're doing a humanities degree, the most likely route is um, into teaching. And school was not a place Stevie necessarily enjoyed with its rules and discipline, and it wasn't really a place she wanted to return to. She has a wonderful poem, actually, where she rewrites Dante's Purgatory. She has Paolo and Francesca, but instead of being in the seventh circle of hell, they're in what seems like a public boarding school, and the radiators are always turned up too high. Um, so school is a quite terrifying place for her. I think as well, her not going to university gave her a, a very different kind of set of um, opportunities and possibilities. So she goes to uh, Mrs Hoster's secretarial uh, college. She trains there for six months and she learns, first of all, how to address a bishop, how to address royalty, that you shouldn't look at your boss's face when you're taking dictation and look at his shoes. Can I switch across to Jeremy now? Yeah. Jeremy now. Um, so she, what is this place that she, which she sought and was... Uh, given work, her first workplace? So this place is a magazine publisher called Nunes, and she works for the boss, uh, who's called Neville Pearson. And she gets this job... What sort of magazine is it? Well, it publishes various magazines, but they tend to be sort of women's magazines. Uh, I mean, at one point she characterises the kind of articles they run as something like how to turn a top hat into a knitting bag, homely advice 
It's very much not really a, a literary market, although she does do some, some writing for them. But it puts her on the edge of a kind of literary world because it's a publishing world, it's an editorial world. And also it gives her time to read because it doesn't seem as though this job that she gets as a secretary is especially demanding. So what's she reading? Uh, wow, I mean, she's reading all sorts. You know, she reads the classics, she, te- she takes German uh, and French lessons, she reads a lot of modern fiction, she reads Proust and Joyce and yeah. Wolfe and D.H. Lawrence. That's big reading. Yeah, um, she keeps a reading diary uh, in the early 20s, which is, you know, great evidence for, effectively, this, this English literature degree education that she gave herself. Yeah, and meanwhile going on with the job. Well, yeah, to the best of her abilities. I think I read somewhere that she was a one-fingered typist. I'm not sure (laughs) how rigorous the secretarial school was. But she seems to have developed a sort of easy mutual understanding with her boss that they would kind of leave each other alone, that neither of them were especially keen on being too sort of busy in the workplace. Um, Did they do much work? It just sounds like she didn't have much time for it. Well, well, no, um, and this is why she calls her first book Novel on Yellow Paper, because it's the yellow paper she keeps in the office uh, for unofficial business. Blue paper is for letters. It was rather idiosyncratic the way she arrived at writing that, wasn't it? Yeah, So that is an interesting story because the first time you can read Stevie Smith's poems in book form is in her novel, which is called Novel on Yellow Paper or subtitled Work It Out for Yourself, which gives you a sort of sense of the rather confrontational attitude she takes towards the reader in it. And she's been writing poems seriously for about 10 years, from around 1924. How old was she, 24? 1924, and she was 22 at that point. So she's been writing poems for 10 years, and in 1934 she sends them to a publisher, this mass of poems, and she gets a reader's report, and the reader says, this is extraordinarily mixed stuff, we're not going to publish it. So she takes them to another publisher, they're quite interested, but the publisher says to her, go away and write a novel. And she thinks this is a challenge that he doesn't think she's going to take up. So she goes and writes a novel on yellow paper in about 10 weeks, and returns with it, and he likes it. But actually, he can't get the rest of the company to approve it. It's a little bit too out there. So she takes it to a third publisher, which is uh, Jonathan Cape. They take it, publish it, it's a success, and then she publishes the poems. But in the novel, she quotes several of the poems and says to the reader, you get first look in. (laughs) That's smart, isn't it? Was this a strategy from the very beginning? If if they won't publish my poems, I'll make them publish my poems inside something they will publish. I think there was a real attitude of defiance in writing this book. It comes out of nowhere because people sort of think, who is this Stevie Smith we'd never heard of? She hasn't published anything in a magazine. Somebody thinks it's Virginia Woolf writing (laughs) under a pseudonym, thinks it's her best novel, writes a fan letter to her saying, I think this is your best thing yet, so it's not me. The whole question of the status of these poems is a bit unclear. Have they just been made up for the purposes of giving the narrator of the novel uh, a, a poetic side? And it's only a year later when, when they appear in book form that it's clear that she is actually serious about them. Excellent. Noreen, uh, she's in this household. She's working and she's launched on a career. Let's, let's assume we're at the stage where this novel, The Novel on Yellow Paper, has been published. 
Uh, and but the major figure in her household seems to have been her aunt. Is that right? Yes, if certainly so, that's how Smith talked about yes, her. Yes. So, yeah. so what? What was strong about her aunt that attracted her? Smith describes the aunt as having a very fierce, very upright, very dignified character. She called her the lion aunt in her in her letters and in her novels. And it seems to be have, have been a great deal of love between the two of them. She was accused of never being in love, and she said, "I was once with and with my aunt." Absolutely, yeah. yeah with Neville Braybrook, she she said that to Neville Braybrook. People think that because I never married, I know nothing about the emotions. When I am dead, you must put them right. I loved my aunt, yeah. and it's such a beautiful line because what that relationship with the aunt did was model for Stevie Smith a way of living differently, I think. Um, well, certainly in her last novel, The Holiday, she writes that because she grew up with her aunt as the aunt with the most important figure in her life, she never got used to the idea of a house hierarchically organised around a man's needs. And so marriage didn't make any sense to her. Um, it didn't make any sense to her to be the wife. And the aunt absolutely babied her until quite late in the aunt's life, until she grew ill, the aunt did all the cooking and things. And then the aunt became ill and, and the roles reversed. And C.V. Smith took up the cooking with, with quite a good grace. Um, she said, cooking's a wonderful way of getting rid of aggression and talked about how she loved to hold a nice young parsnip in her hands. Eventually, the aunt was confined to upstairs. Smith sort of camped out upstairs with her. And the aunt died in 1968. And Stevie Smith actually died just three years after that. So they lived most of their lives together. And Smith's auntless life was very short. Another thing, though, that's interesting about that relationship with the aunt is that the aunt knew almost nothing about what she was doing in the literary world. And Smith tells the story a few times with hilarity of the aunt calling one of her early poems unnecessary. And she says things like, oh, you know, that's all very good, dear, but you know I don't know anything about it. And I, I think Smith really valued being able to come home to this figure to whom her literary life was irrelevant, to whom she was just Peggy. Do you think that infiltrated into the way she wrote poetry? Because the way she writes poetry is often... I'm writing poetry of the sort that most people don't write poetry. I'm dismissing the way people normally write poetry, and I'm doing it this way. Is that any, does that make any sense? It's so... The way that she writes is absolutely, I think, in conversation with this idea of dismissal. There's something about her poetry, I think, that is so odd that it's it's quite hard to almost hear, quite hard to get a grasp on, because it's taken... Have you got any examples? Oh, well, just so... Well, one that I always think of is um, The Bereaved Swan, which begins, One swan on the lake, like a cake of soap. Why is the swan one on the lake? He has abandoned hope. So we start in this really comic space, where the swan is like a cake of soap floating on yeah, a bath. Um, but then we end up in this place of despair when the swan dies, wrapped in a mantle of death. The swan is dead. So we move really quite abruptly from the kind of comic into the tragic. And because of this, we don't really know how to get a handle on this poem. And I think Smith really lent into this, this sense of being someone you couldn't get a handle on. So, another example. Um, another poem um, which I, I've been thinking of recently is Croft. It goes, aloft in the loft sits Croft, he is soft. What do you do with that? What I do you do know, with you that do at all? Um, I only it's, found it's just rhymes. It's just rhymes. It's just the off rhyme. Well, this is interesting. I only found out recently that this is actually a take on a Northern English saying: "The name's Croft, not Soft," which is as much to say as, you know, I'm not an idiot. You can't take me for a ride. And it was in this way that Smith would sort of take these little overheard snatches of uh, conversation or these sayings, which had this wonderful weight as far as she was concerned. They were cliched, but she'd look into them and see something in them that other people hadn't noticed and she'd them, give them prominence. Did any of them extend into poems longer than half a line? Oh, there is, so many of her poems are only sort of two lines long. Well, can you um, give us at least two lines? Or maybe <laughs> can we rise to four? <laughs> um, 
uh, I could give you a, a poem. It's a funny one. It's about a, a dog called Jumbo. Jumbo, 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 oh, Jumbo come to mother. But Jumbo wouldn't. He was the sort of dog who simply wouldn't bother. An ugly beast he was with drooping guts and filthy skin. It really was quite wonderful how mother loved the ugly thing. <laughs> Good. Over to you. My favourite Stevie Smith poem is Scorpion, which starts off apparently in the outpatients department, and it starts with a line, This night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then it switches, My soul is never required of me. It always has to be somebody else, of course. Will my soul be required of me tonight, perhaps? I often wonder what it would be like to have one's soul required of one, but all I can think of is the outpatients department. Are you Mrs Briggs, dear? No. I am Scorpion. That's about as much as I have. But it's just such a magnificent poem, and I have a great sense when I read it of an angry woman, sort of full of this sense of her own grandeur, who is massively underestimated by the people around her and has a sense of the things she could achieve if people only took her for, you know, took her seriously. And, and I think that Scorpion poem comes from mm. her last book, which is published posthumously, and it doesn't have the rhymes that characterise her early work. There is a sense that the, the rhymes perhaps are something like a defence mechanism in the early work, you know, because they seem to be funny. Mm. And another one that makes me think of is the poem Mr Over, and that clearly begins as a joke, that poem. It goes, Mr Over is dead, he died fighting and true, and on his gravestone they wrote, over to you. And that's obvious, that's a joke, right? That's just, it was, the poem is entirely written for that joke. And then it limps on for another sort of four or five verses and turns into a kind of consideration about mankind and death. But yeah, absolutely. Smith always starts with a joke and goes on from there. Can we, can we turn to the, um, how she came to publish her first poetry, go back to that first poetry collection in 1937. Mm. Well, it was called A Good Time Was Had By All. Now she did nothing that hadn't significance. So what's the significance of that? The title sort of picks up on the last sentence that you might get if you're summarising a parish town hall meeting. A good time was had by all. The good joke is that really probably nothing happened at this meeting of merit. But euphemism is really important to her and idiom is really important to her as well. Her first collection is full of dramatic monologues or character sketches where the person has been slightly shortchanged. So there's a poem called The Actress and the first line is, I can't say I enjoyed it, but the pay was good. And similarly, um, we've heard from The Bereaved Swan, um, which Noreen's already quoted, and it almost seems like an update of Tennyson's poem, The Dying Swan. And of course, at least if you're dying and you're a swan, you get this beautiful melody and this moment where the reeds um, gather around you. Whereas if you're the bereaved swan, you can't sing at all. So you have this really stubby, um, monosyllabic language. Similarly, there's um, a poem called Miss Simpkins about a woman who becomes very interested in spiritualism and tells her husband how exciting it is that there's an afterlife and things change. And he's so excited about that that he goes and kills himself and he, she's then forced to scrub the floors of Westminster <laughs> County Hall. Um, so there's lots of kind of just desserts of people who are trying to get on with life, but actually euphemism kind of breaks down a little bit. It makes me think right back to um, later poems like The Frog Prince, and again, another great example of how she's so good at fashioning idiom and euphemism into new poetic language. So in her retelling of the classic Frog Prince fairy tale, the frog is there thinking about he, how he can't wait to kiss the girl, he can't wait to get back to the palace, it will be heavenly when those things happen. But of course, as he thinks about that word heavenly, which has a very sort of 1930s, uh, 40s resonance from kind of magazine columns, he realises, alas, that only disenchanted people can be heavenly. 
So that sense of leaning into a particular idiom and making kind of poetic magic of it. The final thing which really strikes me coming back to that first collection is how incredible Smith is at ventriloquism. I would say in English poetry she is absolutely the best. We've heard so much about the different types of readings she would be doing, romantic poetry, biblical quotations. She's able to fuse them together in a quite incredible way, often by not really um, trying to join the cracks together. So we're suddenly kind of jarringly moved from one register into another. And lots of her contemporaries... Um, so, for example, moments where she might um, take newspaper review of a recent translation of the Bible and use it as a starting point to write a poem in admiration of Thomas Cranmer, the earlier translator. Or similarly, she might use the jangle of words or quotations from uh, the magazines that are being published by uh, Nunes. What were her biggest influences, do you think? Well, it does seem that reading Blake around 1924, William yeah. Blake, was particularly important to her. And there is something very Blakean about how she sees human life as this constant war, really, between innocence and experience. And she even writes poems with Blake titles, like Little Boy Lost. So that's very important. But actually, she absorbs an enormous amount of influences. Strangely, she says that one of the most important influences on her work was Gibbon not a poet, a historian. Uh, and she often quotes a line from Gibbon about how the early Christians were not desirous of being either useful or agreeable in this earthly life. That, the resonance of that phrase, useful and agreeable, that's the kind of precarious rhythm that makes its way into titles like tenuous and precarious. I often think when I read Smith of a table with one leg too short and you lean on it and go much further over than you meant to. Gibbon really captures that kind of rhythm. Uh, another poet who's really important is Coleridge, one of, not as well known as Not Waving But Drowning, but still quite well known, is her poem Thoughts About the Person from Porlock. It's uh, Smith's poem riffing on Coleridge. It takes on the story that Coleridge wrote Kubla Khan in a, an opium haze and then was interrupted by the person from Porlock and forgot the rest. Mm. And Smith says in the poem, well, I think Coleridge is already stuck with Kubla Khan and he used the person from Porlock as an excuse not to finish the poem. And then the poem goes on into a longer consideration of the desire to be interrupted, the longing for someone to come and save you from your own company, whether that's death or a person from Pornock. You know, there's a tendency of critics, notably male critics, to say she's a complete original. And that's only true in the sense that she has a completely original combination of enormous number of other things that she's read. She seems to have been a practising Anglican all her life. Is that true? And if so, where did it take her? I don't know. I mean, I think, in, you know, in a social sense, in Palmer's Green, perhaps you didn't sort of ostentatiously not always go to church, and, and she lived in a household where her aunt maintained the surpluses and cassocks of the choir boys at the local church. So there was a, you know, she was within the social world of the Anglican church, but I think she lost her faith in her early 20s. Um, I mean, one Any of the things that... Occasion? I'm not aware of a particular occasion. I mean, she becomes very interested in reading about theology and church history. One of the things the Reader's Report about her first poem says is that it has several blasphemous digs at Christ. And they're sort so of... Church, can you think of it? There's an early poem, which for me is a sort of classic of her religious poems, which is called Mother Among the Dustbins. And she says it's a dialogue, which her religious poems often are, two voices. One is a child who doesn't believe in religion, but thinks it's a good thing that it exists because it maintains social order, which I feel was probably her position early on. And the mother who's sweeping up the dust is a romantic revolutionary in a depressive state of mind. So the, the mother has this religious fervour and the child says, no, it's just good enough that religion exists. And, and the child has the last word. She says, who are you to question the folly of man in the invention of God? Who are you? 
Later on, when she records it, sort of decades later, she says, who are you to question the wisdom of man in the, in the creation of God? But I think either way, it's the same thing. She sees religion as something people have made up, uh, even though she thinks it might be quite a good thing. In another poem, she says, a god is man's doll, you ass. He makes him up on purpose. But then the other voice says, he might have made him up worse. I always think, when I think about Smith's relationship with God, of her poem, God the Eater, which, which sums up a kind of contradiction at the heart of her relationship to Anglicanism. There's, there is a God in whom I do not believe, yet to this God my love stretches. This God whom I do not believe in is my whole life, my life and I am his. So that really interesting doubleness, the way that you might not believe in something and yet every part of you, in every posture you occupy, could be directed to a kind of devoutness, to a kind of posture of worship. Um, it's, it, to me, it's almost as though God died in Smith when she was young and yet her whole character was shaped around the idea of there being a God there and she never it's quite a, I got beyond the, that. I yeah. an interesting dilemma that people, mm. a lot of people hold even now, yeah. that you are fascinated by it and drawn to it but you don't the word belief is difficult to utter. Yes. But then later in, in life, in the 60s, she writes this very long poem which is published in The Observer and she actually confronts this and says you know, isn't there a danger in being the sort of person who doesn't want to criticise religion mm. because you think it does good? And she actually ends up saying, I think with all this dishonesty, armed as we are now, meaning nuclear war, we shall kill everybody, which is a pretty fierce uh, way of putting it. And the next week, the letters page is full of responses to this poem. So later on, I think she's, she's much more daring in the way that she says, this isn't really true for me. And anything that includes death attracts her very strongly. Death, for her, she has this vision of death which seems to imply some kind of belief in an afterlife but not a Christian but in, afterlife. But she has this vision of death as death as death when she was very, very ill yeah. on that time. She said she thought a lot about death by taking her own life when yeah. she was on her own with yeah, TB. So, yeah, so this was when she was eight years old. Yes, absolutely. But still, you can be eight years, you can have thoughts like that when you're eight years old. Yeah, well, she said childhood thoughts cut deep. Yes, clearly she did. Noreen, can we talk, or can you talk please? Um, that she was, uh, she had a could be called a preoccupation with death. The last mm. four, four or five words of her published poetry uh, about death come quickly. Uh, so, what do you make of that? Her relationship with death, she dates it back to her time in the sanatorium and she puts herself at eight there. This is her account in Novel on Yellow Paper, her fictionalised account of that time. She describes being risking her mother a lot, crying a lot, wishing she was dead. And then she has a kind of epiphany, she says. She says, I sat up and said, death has got to come when I call. So in other words, I don't need to die yet because it is always in my power whether or not I kill myself. And that thought comforted her. And she returns to it over and over again through her life and in other poems, the idea that she's in charge of when she dies. And that comforted her enough that she got through her whole life without killing herself and died at the age of 68 of natural causes. I think that kind of finding the cheerfulness in death and in, I suppose another way, the deathliness and cheerfulness, um, the idea that death could be a consolation and, and actually keep you alive. Um, it manifests in the, the relationship she had with her friends. Her friends describe her puddle jumping between joy and grief. One minute she's at lunch crying and saying she wishes, wish, wishes she was dead. The next minute she's laughing and trying on hats and having a lovely time. Um, Must have been a difficult company. I think she was very difficult company. She also needed a lot of lifts home to Palmer's Green, which I think was a bit of a pain for her friends. But she is self-aware. She has moments of self-awareness in in this melodrama about death. So in her last novel, The Holiday, um, her cousin Kaz in that novel says, you are romantic about death. 
The train of death that you are waiting for is an excursion train. In other words, you don't want to go away forever. You just want to go on a little holiday. You want to have a bit of a break from this overwhelming, exhausting life. And in one of her last poems, she, Black March, um, death comes as an old friend, and he says he will bring her a breath of fresh air, a change for you. Mm. So again, it's that same idea of just going away for a rest cure, and then maybe you get to come back. Well, there are these drawings. Did they give much to her poems? I think a great deal. She began drawing in school when she was working as a secretary. They were all gathered together in boxes. And then when she was actually writing her poetry and gathering them together for a collection, that would spark off another drawing which would start off another poem. It's true that critics have been rather unsettled by them. So I think Philip Larkin, when he was writing at length, Uh, reviewing um, her selected poems um, thinks they should have ended up more or less in the fire. I think that's perhaps... He ended up as a great fan of hers, didn't he? Um, He did, yes. I mean, his review from the 60s is probably the first long serious piece of criticism which says, let's look at this poet and let's take them seriously. Perhaps because of the sense of uh, her being eccentric, he also helps us himself to a couple of um, words or, or lines from hers. But I think she, he's also quite dismissive, so talks about the fact that because she writes about cats all the time and because she doodles, um, she shouldn't be taken seriously. I mean, I think that actually one of the great things about Stevie Smith is she takes poetry seriously enough to risk not being taken seriously as a poet, which I think is, is quite rare, actually. And the drawings... Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense, actually, yes. But she, I th- she says in, she has this little statement called My Muse, and she says the poet is not an important person, mm. which I think is a, is a so true... So she rouses herself as a sort of conduit. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I think fits with her ventriloquism. She's there in the poems, but she's hiding behind all these other voices and characters. Yeah. You know, she says about her novels that she can't get away from the self, she can't get away from the first person. It's in the poems that she can create this world. Right. Yeah, and I think the drawings help with that, actually. So they might begin as illustrations in early collections. You know, there's a poem about a cemetery, and we see a drawing illustrating it of uh, people gathered round um, a tomb but as we move towards later collections they're often more animal faces human faces there's a really interesting match actually with the very earliest drawings we have from Smith so she inherited her sister's library full of scholarly books and her sister writes all over them she does scholarly annotations um, as if she's going to you know, study at university and Smith reads them and all we have are these funny girls faces that she draws at the side of the books so we can tell that she's looked at the pages but we have absolutely no idea what she thought about them mm. and that's sort of a little bit what's happening in the in the drawings yeah so the so the drawings are sometimes almost like a kind of comment on the poem, but they're not necessarily illustrations. I mean, that little poem about Croft sitting uh, aloft in the loft being soft, it's illustrated, well, is it illustrated by a picture of a figure wearing a dress sitting in an attic? And so the male pronoun is kind of queried by the little uh, portrait next to it. James, if we go through this poem without uh, uh, not waving but drowning, I think we'll be sued. Okay. Actually, away you go. So shall we have it? (laughs) Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much farther out than you thought, and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always, still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. And why did that catch on? Has it caught on? So, yeah. uh, has it got such a grip on anthologies and people's knowledge of her through that one poem. I think it's repetition that's very attractive. It just sums up this idea of, you know, the cliché would be uh, the tears of a clown. It's very simple to memorise. I think a lot of people can easily get it by heart. 
it expresses a sort of a very British scene, doesn't it? <laughs> um, man dies on holiday, <laughs> going out when the sea's too cold. Do you want to come in? Both of you want to come in. One of our reviewers, Rodney Ackland, said that if he was somehow made amnesiac by some terrible catastrophe, the only line that remained in his mind after that would be the line, not waving but drowning, sort of circling his head repetitiously forever. There's something about the kind of parallelism in that phrase, as Jeremy said, the repetition, that makes it utterly memorable. And it's crept into kind of headlines and ever since even by people who might not have ever heard of Stevie Smith. Yeah, this is, is what Larkin liked in her, that she had this proverbial quality, mm. and it was the, the collection that that poem appeared in that Larkin really yeah. latched onto. Well, it sort of begins as a newspaper story, which is interesting. So he, she reads a story in a newspaper which has the opposite account. That's they, an interesting thing. Yeah. We tell the listeners right away that actually what happened, what really happened, was the opposite of what she said happened. Absolutely, and it's a good sort of, sort of example, really, of how Smith turns what she sees around her on its head, and then, of course, it finds way back into newspapers uh, via um, the headlines as well. I think it's also the turn in the third stanza is really important too, that we move from this kind of drama of the event of this drowning man to a much more terrifying and horrendous thing, which is daily experience, the fact that we might be too far out all our lives, and also that sense of miscommunication and misapprehension being so central to what it is to be human. And so many of Smith's poems and the power of her novels too is about the kind of very small minor tragedy of daily miscommunication and misunderstandings. And that sort of shows it very well, I think, in that poem. And the drawing that accompanies that poem is strange because it is definitely a female figure, or it appears to be a figure with long hair rising from the sea, almost in resurrection. And I think maybe in the last stanza, I hope I quoted it right, but it changes from the dead man to the dead one, almost as though it's a poem about sort of moving out of one's earthly body, which I think is something Smith found fascinating, the idea that you might sort of be transformed at death. In mm. the background of this conversation so far has been this lonely woman in Palmer's Green and so on, but actually when public poetry got going and when you stood up on stage and did your poetry, she really got cracking, didn't she? She mm. was a good performer, made people laugh, crowds came, she became popular. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I think of her career as having this U-shape because, you know, she begins very high, novel uh, with, on yellow paper is a success, her poems are a success, and then basically it dips through the 40s uh, and she's at a real low point, which is when she writes Not Waving But Drowning, but then it starts to come up in the 50s and she, she catches this wave of younger poets putting on public readings. You know, poetry reading in public isn't really a thing before the war, and they take her up as this, you know, sort of person from a previous generation, but she's a performer. I mean, if you hear readings uh, of Smith before an audience, she has them in the palm of her hand. They're laughing, you know, she's obviously pulling faces and gesturing at them. Uh, she also sings, so she seems actually... Are you going to imitate this person? <laughs> okay, I will give you the last stanza of one of her poems about death. You will sing it or give it? It has, I, I will give it uh, in a musical fashion. Um, she does a sort of play chant. So this okay. is a poem about uh, a woman called Muriel who has lost her friends in high society. She's rather lonely. And the last stanza uh, goes, Do take Muriel out, although your name is death. She will not complain when you dance her over the blasted heath. Right. <laughs> and the audience then break into applause. So, of course know, they did. And what else could they do? <laughs> <laughs> so we have these performances towards the end. She becomes, in that sense, on that circuit, quite mm. famous. And the um, aura of loneliness seems to have diminished or disappeared. 
Well, in some ways, um, she has a very sociable 60s. And this is the point where her aunt is declining in health. And suddenly she's um, travelling the country, going to readings from Eton College to the Royal Albert Hall. And that's also the first time that she really takes the stage with other poets. She quaps defiantly, says she would normally cross the road rather than hear a poem. And all the way through um, her life, after she leaves Nunes in 1953, she's doing lots of book reviewing, but she will never really review a book of poetry. Um, but once we get to her on stage, she's taking the stage with, um, with Lowell, Robert Lowell, um, with uh, Michael Horowitz, and uh, poets who are looking at her in new ways. There's also the, the sense of kind of costume and performance which comes out in uh, her readings as well. So she would normally wear a Victorian pinafore dress, almost making a feature of the fact that she was much older than everyone else on the stage and from a different generation, from a different time. She once said to an uh, interviewer, the times don't want to accommodate me. The times are just going to have to expand to make room for me. And what's really joyful to see over her career, it doesn't track the normal kind of pattern of her poetry career in that actually the times do make room for her in the 1960s and suddenly she finds her audience. And she gets the gold medal for poetry and unlike in a Serbia Plath, as it were, admire her and let their admiration yeah. be known. Mm. So that's pretty good. Yeah, and the connection is interesting too because another sort of poet might make the most of those things and Sylvia Plath famously writes to her um, when she moves to London after the end of her marriage um, hoping to make um, some sort of connection and she calls herself a desperate Smith addict and really wants to make a connection and Smith just sort of says well it's so nice when poets write to me because I don't really read very much poetry and it's a very sort of dismissive kind of quite flat response there's a kind of admiration there, but she wants to be singular throughout. I think she's very important to Plath, though. Uh, the, the most recent biography of Plath notes that when she's writing her poems in autumn 1962, which are the poems that go into Ariel, and she's writing these sort of fabulously inspired poems day after day, she has a Smith poem pinned above her desk. Uh, which Do we has know a, the poem? Yeah, well, it has a line, it has a couplet in it, which is something like, uh, and I walk rather queerly and comb my long hair, and people say, don't bother about her. And I think you can hear in that a rhythm and a, 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 a cadence that comes through in those, in those aerial poems. You know, Lady Lazarus by Plath ends, and I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. She takes to Smith as this defiant female poet. I think it's important when she writes that fan letter, she says, I've been listening to your recordings all weekend. She's hearing this voice, and it's not like anything else she's heard before. Mm. Can each of you sum up what you think her legacy is, starting with Minery? Smith is one of those poets, I think, that people that is found by people who need her. So just to kind of take one example at random, I read a poetry collection recently from 2020 by um, Charlotte Gann called The Girl Who Cried, and it's deeply embedded in Smith's rhythms. It's also illustrated with little pen and ink drawings. It um, engages a lot of the same themes around kind of despair and death and emotions you can't justify. So what I think is so interesting about Smith is her capacity to kind of vanish from the poetic mainstream for, for long sort of periods of time. I mean, her, her influences. And then they'll pop up again. I think as a writer who gives us the option to get the first look in, everybody who reads Smith feels like they're rediscovering her or reading her for the first time. And so she has fans as varied as Ali Smith or Morrissey um, or Jeanette Winterson. I think her legacy also can be seen in a much more expansive way in terms of a poem being anywhere. So she could make a poem happen in a review um, or in a novel. And lots of her works are actually sort of prose poems. And in contemporary writing, this is something um, which is much more possible. I think perhaps uh, another thing to, to think about is the idea that anything could be a subject for a poem. That's one of the things Larkin really admires about her. She can take a pot shot at anything, the most ordinary thing, and make it into a poem. And I think we're much more comfortable now with the idea that anyone could be a poet, anything could be a poem. And I think that's really Smith's work. 
Finally. Yeah, and I think to pick up on that, the idea that anything can, can be in a poem, I think people respond strongly to the way in which Smith is a poet of love, but, but unconventional love, love for other things, you know, love for the aunt, love for animals, she writes about wonderfully, just love for something that is not a human relationship. I mean, there's, there's a great poem called Lady Rogue Singleton, begins with a man proposing marriage, and she says, I cannot make you happy, darling, uh, or give you the babies you want. I would always very much rather, dear, live in a tent. <laughs> uh, and, and basically her love is safari. Um, I cannot feel for you what I feel for the elephants and, for, and the miasmas and the general view. I think it's a good ending there, Jeremy. Thank you very much, Jeremy Nolton, Will May and Noreen Massoud, and our studio engineer, Emma Harth. Next week, the genius of Paul Erdős, who invented whole new branches of mathematics. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So, what, what did you not say you'd like to have said? I, <laughs> I what did we say I we didn't want to have said? Yeah. <laughs> no. I always said about The first about one first, and then... <laughs> Smith and friendship. You know, she, she, she thinks about getting married early on, but she, for her, the rhythm of friendship is coming and going. You know, she likes to get on with people, but not for too long. Um, and I was thinking, you know, these days she would be the sort of friend that you didn't hear from from ages, and then suddenly you'd get lots of texts. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that living on the edge that Noreen's talked about is, is how she, she liked to maintain her relationship. But did you, what sort of edge was it? What sort of edge? Well, yeah, you say living on the edge. Does that mean she's, <coughs> she feels she's in, in peril? What well, do you mean she, by the edge? She said she felt as though life was enemy territory. Um, and I think perhaps there's a sense in which she, she, in Palmer's Green, she was living on the edge of it, and maybe beyond, you know, was the edge of the world that you would fall off. But London was also obviously very exciting to her too, um, for her literary life. So she liked to be able to go in, but she liked to be able to come away again. Mm. Mm. Just to come on that idea of a friendship as well, it's often uh, not those ordinary relations which are much heralded in poetry and prose. So actually, just thinking about the acute pains and kind of difficulties of friendship that comes through mm. um, quite a bit in her work. I think as well, as a lyric poet, she's very interested, because of um, going forwards and backwards in time, in thinking about things recollected a long time ago. So she has a wonderful set of lyrics where she's kind of, um, I suppose, thinking about thoughts recollected in anxiety, where she has um, this kind of elderly man thinking about uh, a former lover and saying, I took fright, I suppose, when um, you were unkind, and all I know now is, um, if you should say that now, I should not mind. Uh, the, The capacity to feel angry, exaggerated and sad, the years have taken from me softly i go no pad pad Mm. so the sense of how through time and and space and through our lives we really reaccommodate our sense of of the world is is there as well yes i think she does that very well yeah and and that's a poem where her rhythms really mark that that movement in time because the first part of the poem you just quoted the end there will is almost like a limerick um i remember your beautiful flowers and the beautiful kimono you wore when you sat on your couch with a tigerish crouch and told me you love me no more Mm. And then there's the second half of the poem, which f- falls almost into prose. It's very flattened and disillusioned. Mm. Yeah, I think rhyme is a really key thing as well, which we've sort of talked about by the side, but it's one of her great things, along with those metrical tricks. So things like rhyming, I don't know, orthodox and shut in a box, or <laughs> hippopotamus and lost in a fuss. And they're kind of rhymes mm. that most poets wouldn't dare do because they seem almost kind of quite lyrish or carol-like. Or over-simple. Um, or over-simple, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 or Ogden Nash. Mm. Um, and of course Ogden Nash had his own rhyme about Smith mm. as well. We haven't talked much about the novels, really. Mm. Um, so where you go. The, yeah. <laughs> time in the world. Yeah, and the novels, uh, um, Smith has this reputation of being kind of, sort of frivolous and childlike, but the novels are really incredibly, and 
I think, unnervingly for some people embedded in their political context. The first two, a novel on yellow paper published in 1936 and um, Over the Frontier, which comes out in 1938, they're both really concerned with the kind of the rots of Nazism in Germany. Um, but even more interestingly beyond that, they're interested in... The, the kind of culpability and susceptibility to rhetoric of British people um, in the face of that. I think we have quite a now quite a comforting, nostalgic narrative about how British people responded in the face of Nazism. But the way that Smith presents herself in those novels is as somebody who's, who's very anti-Semitic, who has a lot of Jewish friends, but also feels sort of fundamentally superior to them. It's very acute and over the frontier when somebody mentions the Jews and she says, I am in despair for the racial hatred that is running in me in a sudden swift current. So it's, it's again that's quite self-aware. She she lives to regret that. Uh, you know. Oh, but very much. What I think, you know, absolutely. I think what's so interesting there, though, is is that honesty about the fact that intellectually you can have this. You know, she had certain kind of commitments to anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, and yet um, her susceptibility, I suppose, to the structural racism of the time, the kind of yeah, the contemporary currents of anti-Semitism. She's quite rather than pretending that she isn't susceptible to that rhetoric, she kind of centres it and talks about it rather than denying it. One of the main plot twists in novel with yellow paper, novel on yellow paper, uh, is that it begins with this very casual expression of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. uh, and then about halfway what is through... That? Can you remember the very Well, she says, you know, sort of, I feel like a, a, an intelligent goy among all these Jewish people I'm at a party with and she just sort of expresses her casual feeling of superiority. Hurrah to be a goy. Yeah. yeah. But then she goes to Germany, as, as Smith actually did, and she sees, it's Weimar Germany, but she sees the rise of Nazism and she says, I felt real wicked about um, the thoughts I'd had about Jewish people halfway through the novel. Um, it doesn't stop her losing Jewish friends, though, because you know she puts these thoughts in, into print and, and they read them. Um, and even later, you know, in the 1940s, in her in her short story "Beside the sea- Seaside," she's got you know characters expressing really horrible anti-Semitic views. Yeah, that loses her friends as well. What effect did that have on her readers? Well, uh, she certainly. I think it was Betty Miller who stopped speaking to her after um, after she published published that short story. And yeah, the first paragraph of her first novel ends with goodbye to all my beautiful friends because of uh, liable the sense in which they might be finding their way into her stories in ways they would be uncomfortable with. The third novel seems to me really uh, extraordinary attempt, The Holiday, yeah. which appears in 1949 but she writes it during the war and then can't find a publisher. Um, and, and oddly, when it does appear, everything, all the references to the war are changed to the post-war. So it exists in this sort of limbo time where they're obviously doing war work, but the war is over. But it seems to me the thing she's really grappling with there, as she's grappling with Nazi Germany in the 30s novels, is the end of empire, and particularly the end of the British Raj. And the central chapter is a debate about this, the rights and wrongs of it, and she gives her narrator an Indian childhood, which she didn't have, so she actually invents this, uh, these memories. Um, and again, she just allows different points of view to be expressed. She doesn't really know what she feels about it. She can see the emotional attachment and, and the, you know, the, the, the rational arguments. But what's weird about it is that it appears in 1949, doesn't make any reference to partition. Mm. Um, it seems to exist in almost in this dream English world where the empire both still uh, is something that everybody's concerned with and is something that is passing. Yeah, and so you get wonderful lines in the holiday, like how long? Because she just changed, as you mm. say, references to to war into post-war. You have wonderful lines like, "How long will the post-war last? Shall we win the post-war?" 
and it's, as you say, a lovely, a dreamlike atmosphere with the kind of intensity and interminableness of war itself. The Holiday is very dreamlike and it bears an interesting relationship to a short story that she published, I think in 1947, where the same characters are repurposed, but over the course of the novel they kind of turn into children and uh, disclose at the end that they've been dead for ages. Mm. And then again in the radio play, ten years later, you have the same kind of parts of the novel turn up again in a different form. Did she in her lifetime get the uh, applause that uh, I suppose she thought she merited? All writers expect uh, I that think they it, merit enormous applause, don't they? I think in the 60s she did, mm. and she enjoyed it. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think it's wonderful that we have these recordings. As, as I say, after she's read a poem or two and the audience have sort of got the measure and she kind of warms them up with a couple of funny ones... Mm. Then they're, you know, they're, they're, they're clapping wildly after each poem. I suspect not every poet, you know, got that reception. Um, I do feel, though, that um, her last book, Scorpion and Other Poems, which appears posthumously, it has been slightly overlooked as a masterpiece. I just think it's such a wonderful collection of poems. And she does things in that book which are actually pushing at her style. Um, she writes these long poems. She writes this poem called Angel Bowley, which is a response to the Moors murders. Um, and it's this very intense, unrhyming uh, fairy tale about whether it's it's right in certain circumstances to kill in order to, 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 to see justice done. Uh, she has that long poem about Christianity that I mentioned. As a collection, um, I, I feel it should really be valued you know, in, in itself, and it tends to get rather lost into the selected poems that, that have been made available. When you get a collected poems, you're surprised at how many there are, aren't you, really? Because yeah. you think these are simple enough, but it should be a simple, slim collection, it isn't. John Bailey writes wonderfully about this. He says it's a, it's a good thing there are so many poems in which we addicts can immerse ourselves, you know. And again, I think of the, the 1934 reader, E.B., mm. for Curtis Brown, who writes in italics in the report, they are so many. And it make, always makes me think of, you know, Jude the Obscure, you know, I've done this because we are so many, you know. Yeah, <laughs> there are just too many yeah. poems in this kind of deathly flood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she loves that bit in Thomas Hardy. She, she's really fascinated by Old Father Time, who's the mm. child who kills all the other children. Yeah, she thinks of her poems in her kiddos. Many. Do you remember how he spells many? M-E-N-N-Y. M-E-N-N-Y, that's right. Yeah. yeah, she often kind of relied on editors as well to help her select which poems are going into the book. So it really was a sense of, here are some poems in a box, here are some drawings, <laughs> let's gather them together. And she has this really ambivalent relationship with the drawings where, you know, not waving but drowning the book, the publisher wants to do it without the drawings, and she agrees. And then she says, no, I'd rather withdraw the book than see it appear without mm. the drawings. Yeah, and she threatens to give her royalty check back, which, if you've not been published for a long time, and suddenly Dan Ethill is... You know, promising to publish your work. That's a very brave thing to do. Mm. It was almost compulsive. She describes it as a kind of compulsive relationship she has to producing the drawings. She describes in one letter, I got really excited and I did loads more drawings and now my room is covered, my office looks like a paper chase. It was as though she couldn't help producing these drawings. Then she kept them in the biscuit tin, didn't she? Yeah, she does Um, them on scraps of paper. A publisher once offered to give her good quality drawing paper and she says she wouldn't be able to draw on that. It has to be these sort of things in the margins. Yeah, good. Well, that's very good. I think we've we've got as much as we need. But the producer will we, come and tell us that. Off a length Have we got a as much as we need? I'd love a cup of tea. Thank you. Yes, please. BBC Sounds Music Radio Podcasts. Introducing Gaslight. I think there's something peculiar about this house. A new drama. From BBC Radio 4. The gaslight's over there, above the fireplace. Yes? I wonder if Mummy might be trying to get in touch. Is the light playing tricks on you? Or is it just your mind? 
What have we both sold this place and you got a job in one of those little colleges that would be pleased to have you? <laughs> you don't really believe her, do you? I'm trying to be kind. Well, like you were with the dog. How much do we really know about the person we love? Is there something I should know about, Jack? No. I didn't put a foot wrong. And how much can we rely? Quite a bit younger than you appear to be on screen. On the kindness of strangers. And you look like you've been crying. Gaslight. You can't talk to me like that. I don't even know who you are. Available on BBC Sounds. Seven years ago, I was filming at East London Mosque when the story broke the three schoolgirls from the area had gone missing. They were heading to Syria to join the Islamic State group. Shamima Begum was the only one of the girls to emerge from the ashes of the so-called caliphate. I've retraced her steps to investigate the truth of her story. What do you think people think of you? As a danger, as a risk. The Shamima Begum Story, Series 2 of I'm Not a Monster. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.